I'm not saying that's a bad thing. <clears throat> Life is short. Everybody, uh, well, not everybody knows this. A lot of people have their hearts uh, into the understanding that uh, that you know life is is awfully long. That's usually amongst the young, <laughs> but then the time comes. Uh, but I, I wanted to, uh, to share with you a quote. I read this quote today from uh, A. W. Tozer. Uh, if you if you don't know any of his writing, I highly recommend it. He said, "Quote." The days of the years of our lives are few and swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert that we cannot stay to give. I just love that idea. It's beautifully put. <coughs> Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert that we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we're forced to lay our instruments down. There is simply not time enough to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicates that we're capable of. We just don't have the time. And uh, Chris and I were talking about this just uh, a few days ago. Uh, we actually talk about it quite a bit. It's, there's just there's not enough time in the day to get everything done that we want to get done. And Tozer puts it here perfectly. You're not going to get it done, all that you want to get done. Uh, you're not going to be able to finish what you probably want to finish. You're not going to accomplish what you dreamed you'd accomplish. And so time is limited, and because time is limited, we have to use it wisely. We can't do everything. So if you have with before you the temporal thing, meaning the earthly thing that you can take care of, and in conflict with that earthly thing is an eternal thing that you can take care of, which one will you choose? And that becomes something that God needs to teach us. We need to be wise with our time, and God is going to teach us that, and he has a way to do it, which is our subject, which is trial. <coughs> God is going to test us so that we learn that the temporal, earthly things are not important, and as Colossians says, that our lives are hid with Christ Jesus in heaven, and that's where we seek. We seek, and but we're in conflict with the earthly that we have to take care of. Every day. So how do we work it out? How do we figure it out? We're going to start in James chapter 1. <clears throat> this will be our last message outside of Matthew before we get back to Matthew. And, and here we're, well, let me pray first. Let's uh, open up in prayer and be grateful and thankful. Always uh, having an attitude of humility, if you don't have one yet, uh, and to um, approach the Word of God with um, uh, a tender heart, uh, inquisitive heart, and also a humble heart. With that, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for all You do and for Your Word. Thank You that... We have before us uh, the eternal Word of God. We thank you that 
it is understandable to us, even though it is eternal. And that, Father, is through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us to indwell us. Therefore, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the Trinity, have worked to provide for us life and wisdom and the application of life in the way that we are to live it in your presence, in fellowship with you, and in experiencing your joy and your purpose. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit and your Word, we would continue to learn that and to be wise and with this particular subject, Father, to learn how to handle trials in the manner that you would have us do so. All of us are going to face them. We can either fail them or we can endure them with you and experience great joy. We ask, Father, these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, the Holy Spirit, as soon as the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus after he's baptized in Matthew 3, at the end of Matthew 3, <coughs> the first thing that the Holy Spirit does in Jesus' life, anyway, is to lead him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so we've been looking at this first temptation that come upon him, turn the stones into bread, and uh, we... Uh, the last two classes, we looked at the fact that he was hungry. And so we looked at weakness, we looked at human weakness. And it's human weakness that makes us susceptible oftentimes to temptation. And we also realize that, and it's a great thing to realize, that human weakness, we can't really do anything. Nothing substantial. I mean, we can do some things, but nothing uh, of an eternal nature, nothing of a substantial nature. Uh, we can't love. We can't truly have justice and righteousness. Uh, we can't even have wisdom without God. And so alone, without God, separate from God, there's nothing we can do. And so uh, we are weak. Another question that enters our minds is, the Holy Spirit leads him out to be tested. Why is Jesus tested? And why are we tested is the question that flows from that. Uh, naturally. And so we look to James chapter 1, which helps us to clarify this. And the idea we get from James 1, and it's most of the first chapter of James is about this. Actually, the entire book of James is about trial, and that's why it opens with this. The, uh, the main theme of the book of James is how to handle trials as a believer. And uh, so the idea is that God leads us into testing in order to greatly increase our faith and our endurance and not sin. Now, this seems obvious that God doesn't want us to sin. But as we read through James, we come upon this curious phrase that says God doesn't tempt anybody. And we're confused because it is confusing. If God is going to lead Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him, and he does. And if we're tested in multiple places throughout the scripture, these tests are good for us. They create endurance. We should be happy about them. Uh, then how is it that God does not tempt? And so we're going to see in our as we look through this, and the Bible makes this pretty clear, uh, that there's different types of testing, and Satan's interested in one, and God's interested in another, and sometimes we get them confused. We have to, the word test is the same word used for both. 
I mean, the scripture does it that way. It's not just us. And, you know, it's not like we, we could use trial, test, pressure, exam. You know, think up all the synonyms you want. But in the New Testament, there's two words for testing uh, that are used. And uh, this one that we see here is used in both good light and bad light. God tests you in this way. Satan tests you. Use the same word, but it's obvious that it's something different. And it's even not that clear cut because there's some more complexity here. And I find that marvelous because God has given us a reality of life and he makes us, through the Spirit and the Word, it takes time, faith, investigation, study, prayer, meditation, being in silence and thinking about it in many ways that we seek wisdom. And wisdom is, you know, we have to unravel things. And it's not, it's not going to be always so, you know, everything fits into watertight compartments. Like this word testing, there's some overlap here. And in the midst of God testing, here we see Satan coming and Satan's testing. So in the midst of God's test, Satan is allowed to test. What Satan wants Jesus to do is wrong. And what God wants Jesus to do is of the most holy and righteous thing. And they both occur in the same situation. And the same thing's going to happen to you and me. You could be in the midst of a test from God that is the most wonderful thing because he's given you strength. And in the midst of that test, there is this God-awful temptation to do the most horrible thing. And if that test wasn't there, that other temptation wouldn't have happened. And God, in a way, we could say, God takes a risk here. Because in putting pressure on you, he is also opening up the opportunity for failure. I mean, without the pressure, you're not going to fail in that way. So think of it this way. God puts someone in your life who's really hard to handle. And now that's a, that's a God is putting that person there for you to know, do you have love? Do you have endurance? Do you have patience? Are you gracious? Do you not judge? Like all these things that are virtuous Christ things. And so that's a good thing. The person in your life to test those things, that's a good thing. You should rejoice because that person is going to teach you, first off, whether you have love or not. And then also, by being in your life, is going to force you to love. And then you're going to learn love. But at the same time, because that person is in your life, you're going to be tempted to punch him in the head or to choke him. All right, so you're not going to go that far. But you're also going to be tempted to hate, to be bitter. If that person wasn't there, that temptation to hate wouldn't come. And God says, I'm willing to take that risk on you because there's something so important that I need to teach you. And God uses testing to do it. So, James 1, 2. 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy, Greek word charis, sorry, not grace, but it's, uh, it's very close to the word grace. It means to rejoice. My brethren, when you encounter, now this word encounter is a Greek word for fall into. Right? So, and that's important here because that word is used for like a ship running against a uh, it, It's actually used in Acts 20, 27, 21, 24. <laughs> it's in the 20s. Where Paul's ship, the, the, the part in Acts that talks about Paul being on the ship and the ship is destroyed. When the ship runs aground, this is the word that's used. Right? It encountered the ground which was not good for a ship. And, you know, what? not by design, right? But it's a, it was inevitable. And that's the point that is beautifully made here. This Greek word, pipto, it means to fall. And, and, and as he's going to say coming up, it doesn't matter how rich you are. doesn't matter if you're poor, rich, male, female, doesn't matter. You are going to run aground. All of us are going to be tested. So consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into, and the word various means not a, a, a great amount, although there will be, but various means multifaceted. There are going to be many kinds. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces, produces sorry, endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Now, this passage is so wonderful because it teaches us that there are there is a way in which I can be complete. That's what the world's looking for. People are buying things on Amazon by the billions because they're looking to be complete. People are searching also let's pick on the internet. People are searching for mates. Or sexual partners on the internet for because they think that's going to make them complete. Uh, people are getting educations and jobs, which you know, the, which are good things, but they think that those things are going to make them complete. They're completely earthbound, and we can get caught up in that. Any believer can, and hence the trial comes. The test is here to teach you. That these, the things that you think are going to make you complete, or the world does, does not. So here are the two words. Endurance means literally, hupomone, this Greek word, means to remain under. Remain under. And so it means it's often translated patient. <clears throat> the word says we're going, to run, we're going to run right into these tests, right? So you can't avoid them. This also means you don't go seeking for them. That's asceticism. That's not correct. Right? So you don't go seeking for them, but you also don't try to avoid them. When they come, it's here. You realize, you have to realize, or you should realize, God will help you to realize, that these tests are in your life for a real important reason. And that, and I love this word. This word, complete. It's uh, oftentimes you see the word complete. It's a different word in, in Greek, which is teleos, which means to finish or to come to an end. But this word complete 
comes from the word whole. And whole here refers to the fact that you're sound in every part. Right? So you can be sound in a certain part of your Christian life and you've neglected another part. And God's going to be like, it's time to work on that part. You're going to be like, what part? What are you talking about? I don't have a part that you need to work on. We don't need to worry about that. That's my little secret room. We're going to leave that one alone. We padlock it. We duct tape it. We put the yellow tape on it. We're like, God, you don't need to go in there. There's a great passage in Proverbs 20 where it says, The Spirit of God searches the soul with his little lamp. And he's walking around in your soul going, oh, look at all these dark rooms. Now, God, because he loves you, wants to fill those rooms with light. You know what those rooms are. And it's the most marvelous thing when he helps you to overcome them. So this would mean that every grace present in Christ is present in you. And that is certainly not an overnight thing. It is a process. Now, this makes perfect sense. In other words, what makes sense is that hardship is going to produce in me endurance. We're not, Christianity is not alone. It's not the only um, knowledge, if you will, or wisdom that has known that. <coughs> it's, not a, it's not only a biblical concept. Cultures and people have known that when you go through trial, you come out stronger. Like if you say you're a soldier, I mean, what you've heard the phrase "battle hardened." You know, if you're if you're like a Spartan, like that Spartan army who like almost won almost everything, they're battle hardened men. They understood that hardship makes endurance. Okay. But this is not any kind, just like, it, this is not just any kind of endurance. Like, uh, a, a Spartan or any, any modern day soldier who can really fight has a certain endurance, an endurance that I don't have. Uh, and, a, and a great athlete has an endurance. A mathematician. Now, I, I used to be really good at math. I, I've had... Uh, three, I've had multiple semesters of calculus. I, I, I was good at it. I, I got an A in differential equations, if you even know what that is. It's like the hardest math class in college. <clears throat> and the other day, we were trying to figure out like addition and subtraction on something. And I'm like, oh, my brain hurts. I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I'm out of practice. I don't care about that. I go, you know, you got to go get your phone to do, uh, get the calculator out to do the most simplest thing. Uh, and I used to make fun of my students who would do that too. So now it's come up, and, but um, I don't care about that. This is a different kind of endurance. And this is the endurance that when trouble arises, it could be financial, it could be health, it could be relationship, it could even be your failure in sin, your self-caused trouble, that you have learned to trust God. If you've sinned, you've learned to trust his forgiveness because you confess and you know you're forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that you find peace. And this makes sense to us that when we find peace, our endurance 
comes from God. Like we have endurance that no matter what comes our way, we still walk with God. I follow his commands. I do his will. I continue my study. I continue my prayer life. Just because my life went crazy, those things don't stop. My life's changed, sure, but those things don't stop. That's an endurance that is it's the spiritual one. And that's the one that God wants. That's the one that Christ had. An endurance to remain in the will of the Father no matter how much pressure is put on me. In the wilderness, he hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's super hungry, but yet he remains in the will of the Father. All right, and then comes prayer. And this is where James goes. Uh, We have to keep it in context because this, the letter itself, as I said, is the center, uh, the main idea of this letter. The reason James wrote it is to teach those who are failing who were under suffering. They were under suffering. They were under persecution, various trials. And they were failing miserably. They were Jews in the dispersion, and they were failing miserably. This is a very Jewish epistle. Regardless, the context continues as we go to verse 5, is endurance and trial. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. You see, if you take that as a proof text, and you take it out of context, you think like, you know, as James mean here, what, what James means here is in trial. And so what is he saying that we need to have endurance in trial? We need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, all of our hands should go up, let him ask of God who gives, an all gener- who gives to all generously without reproach. I, this without reproach is beautiful. Because if you went to someone out, you say if say you went to someone for wisdom, a human being, like a father or a teacher or something, and let's say you've gone to that person one hundred times and asked them for wisdom, and one hundred times they gave you wisdom, and zero times you used it, and they knew this. You have come to me a hundred times and asked me what to do. I have shown you what to do, and then you walked away from me and did the exact opposite. And here you are for the 101st time asking me for wisdom again. What are we going to say to that person? I'm going to say, stupid, go ask someone else. And that would be human, and that would be a failure, right? But here, what does God do? doesn't matter. God said, look, you come to me in faith and ask, you're going to receive it. It's just what Jesus said in the upper room. Ask, and you will receive. So I, why do I need wisdom? Well, I'm in the midst of this pressure, and I don't know. I, I'm not exactly knowing what to do. What did Christ do in his testing? We know he quoted scripture. But what if I'm like, you know, I've been looking for the right scripture, and I can't find it. Stop and ask. Then go look again. And if you still can't find it, guess what? Jesus said, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Keep at it. Ask again. Go back and look. 
God may be testing you to see if you'll persevere in prayer. I love this. Let him, God gives, let him ask. Ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, he's unstable in all his ways. So like a ship at sea without an anchor, flying all over the place. And that's what we're like when we've gone through a trial, we're going through a trial, and we don't have wisdom. Right? We're, what, I mean, our driven by the wind is usually us driven by emotion. Wrong thinking. We're freaking out. Our fear, our anxiety, our emotion. We get angry at people for no reason. The pressure is put upon us and made us weak, weaker. And we're not handling it. And why aren't we? We don't have wisdom. So let's say, well, well I know what James said, and I go to God and ask in prayer, and I ask him, and I'm like, well, I doubt he's going to tell me. Or I doubt I can do it. Or I doubt that God even answers prayer like this. James says you're going to get nothing. And that's I mean, what God says. So why prayer at times of testing? You need wisdom. You and I. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy three times. But it's not like he went through his whole life only using Deuteronomy. He used scripture all over the place. Psalms. and He used the Torah. He used the prophets. He always knew exactly where to go to get what he needed. And it all came from the word of God. Not astounding. Uh. So, a place where we find wisdom is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 132, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. So, the reason I went with this first, I got a better verse coming up for our subject, but the whole book of Proverbs is magnificent. But this word complacency it's yeah i don't mind you know i don't care whether my life is heavenly or earthly i don't care about what i do i don't care i just want to exist i just want to be i just want you know i want i want what i want i don't care about god i don't care about people and that's a lack of wisdom it complacency equals a fool If a human being does not know God, know his creator, know his savior. Remember, Christ is the savior of the world. So everybody is on the hook, so to speak, for the gospel. Hence, the gospel will judge them. And um, everybody is responsible to their creator. And the one, as it says, I think it's in Psalm 112. It's in one of the Psalms. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? There's, there's no accountability to me, to heaven, to God. The whole, this earth and this current world is all that there is. And that is a fool. And fools are destroyed. 
This one, Proverbs 3.18, she is a she. Who's the she? Uh, the Hebrew word is chakma, which means wisdom. She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. The graphic I use is from the Bible Project. Uh, I watched that video again. It's magnificent. And the reason why that graphic of a woman is that most expositors who have gone through Proverbs, I just went through it in a course, I took, an awesome course I took last semester, that in Proverbs there's two women. And you are to marry one and tell the other one, get lost. There's two women. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And I'd invite you to read chapter 10. Because in chapter 10, it's, so, it's super clear. That's the, end. the introduction of Proverbs is from chapters 1 to 10. In chapter 10, Lady Folly is at the door of her house. And Lady Wisdom is at the door of her house. And you're the traveler on the road. And they're both calling to you. And... We have to make our choice. The, the, video, the video does a great job of it. To show this. She is a lady. Proverbs 8, 35 through 36. For he who finds me, wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself and all those who hate me love death. How are you going to handle trial without wisdom? This lady wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, we're to marry her. That's how much we're to uh, like her. Okay, so since we're talking about prayer, in temptation, in testing, I'm going to pray for wisdom so that I know what passage do I need, how do I apply it. Um, in my can you clar clarify the confusion in my head? Uh, uh, dumb down my emotions a bit so I can think. All of this can be handled in prayer. You can ask. And, uh, you know, of course, God's not going to just turn a switch in your mind. You've got to go looking for the passages, and you've also got to also calm yourself down by applying the truth that you know. But what about Matthew 6? All right, let's go there. You can hold your place in James. We're going to head right back. Go to Matthew 6. In the Lord's Prayer, and, you know, just real quickly, I don't have, we're going to go through Matthew 6 soon enough. <coughs> but when Christ teaches us to pray, he tells us this. In verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if we're praying for God not to lead us into temptation, then you know, how does this go with the fact that testing, temptation, which is the same word, that temptation is actually something good for me that's going to produce in me endurance and completeness or wholeness, and I should rejoice in it. So if it's something that I should be rejoicing in, why is it something that I should be praying that God doesn't lead me to? And it's not the same exact Greek word for lead as we see in Matthew 4, but 
you know, you can't help but make the connection. The Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And here he's telling us, pray not to be led. <clears throat> well, in all honesty, I, I went back and checked my commentators just to say, well, you know, I haven't, I haven't visited this passage in a little while. And I find when I read them, and these are people who have been studying the Bible for decades and decades. Some of them are dead. Um, not that that matters. But there's a lot of I think it means this and or I think it means that. And so that tells me that you know we're not going to get a solid 100% very clear answer, which we would probably want. <clears throat> But then consider this in Matthew 26, 40 and 41. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus brings his three disciples with him, his three favorites. uh, And he tells them to watch with him and pray with him. And he goes off to pray. And when he comes back, he finds them asleep. And he says in verse 40, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's just perfect what we've been looking at in terms of why do we need, when we're being tested, why do we need to know that we're weak? It's because we can only use God's spirit, God's word, to try and tackle things on our own. Without God, we are hopeless. And so we are weak. But Jesus here is telling them that, look, you guys need to pray that you don't fall into temptation. But what is the temptation here? Well, it's what they're going to fall into. They're going to freak out and they're going to run. And so what Christ is revealing to them is that you're about to enter something that's very dangerous for you. It's too dangerous for you. And we see that Christ actually prayed for Peter, right? He said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And he said to Peter, after you're restored, become a leader to your brethren, which he did. But Peter is in a very dangerous place. So are the others. And so, again, we can't really answer in as clear as I would like. So I'm not going to make anything up. You know that I don't do that. But he says, watch and be on your guard. Why is that? We don't want anything to hinder our walk with God. We don't want anything to hinder our fellowship with God. And when he says, do not lead us into temptation, he here, I would say, means that it's the temptation, not the testing from God for your strength, but the testing from the devil for your failure. And... It kind of follows here. And again, it's not as clear as we would like. And I just wonder if Jesus just he gives us the words the way that he does so that we'll pray the prayer and it, the understanding of it may just be above our heads. I don't know. But And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word evil is a masculine with a definite article. What that means is it could very well mean evil one. And... You know, you know, like some, we use adjectives to describe people. We say the rich and the poor. Those are not nouns. Those are adjectives. This is an adjective. The evil, but in the singular, masculine, 
with a definite article. It says the evil, which is, you know, a lot of expositors think that that's exactly what he means. But he's speaking of Satan. So, deliver us from the evil one. And that's the temptation. The evil one would refer to our desire to not fall for his schemes. We're saying, God, today, do not lead us to a place where I will be very weak. You know, too weak. There's situations that you and I shouldn't be in. As you mature, those situations, I would say, become less and less. But there's a situation I know that if I put myself in it, there's a greater chance that I'm going to fail. If I contemplate something that is of a sinful nature or a temptation to sin, no, I, I don't want to go there. And there are things that are too hard for us. And that is an application to this prayer. So now, as James says, if you doubt when you pray, you're an unstable ship in the storm and you'll be tossed here and there. And easily, therefore, deceived. All right, go back to James. And he continues in verse 8, verse 9. He says, but the brother of humble, or of humble circumstances, there he means poor. The brother of humble circumstances, the poor, is to glory in his high position. And his high position is in Christ. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. His humiliation is the fact that well, his riches aren't really worth much. They're worth nothing in the kingdom of heaven. And also that, as he's going to say here, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, what Paul does here is, sorry, not Paul, James. James quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And this is, I mean, think of it as uh, wildflowers, which I, in our hiking that we've done here in Oregon, there are certain places that we know that around May, early June, there's beautiful wildflowers uh, in places that we've come to know. But if you can miss it, you're a week or two late and they're all dried up. And that's what is here. The same thing happens in Israel. That um, the, the wet time is through the winter. The spring is beautiful. And then it gets hot and then they're gone. And that kind of climate is perfect to display what the rich are. You know, you're glorious now, but everybody's going to die. It's a 100% guarantee. And so you're all going, we're all going to wither. And we're going to get old enough that all our money's not going to matter. Uh, and so the, the point here is that all suffer. No earthly asset is going to spare anyone. I don't care how much money you have. And so, uh, but it's true, isn't it, that the poor have their own... You know, they have the poor are tested pretty consistently in terms of you know, how much stuff you can have. 
<laughs> the poor are always tested in materialism. But the rich are always tested in materialism on the opposite spectrum, which is a prosperity test. The rich are tested to say, well, I have all that I need. Why do I need God? Like the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. We're comfortable. We have all that we need. Why do we need God? <clears throat> so no earthly asset. It doesn't matter, rich or poor. Name it. And so does God want, this is another great question, does God want all believers to be rich? Now, in my congregation, you already know the answer to that, but there's a number of congregations out there who would nod their heads yes. Because, you know, you name it, claim it. I, I read a commentator today that I read today said, name it, claim it, and frame it. I thought that was neat. He added an extra. Um, anyway, the uh, name it and claim it crowd, you know, that if you have enough faith, you'll get rich. Uh, no, it is God's will for some people to be poor. Paul never, even it's God's will for some people to be slaves. In Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, if you're a slave, don't try and be free. Unless you can do it legally, don't do it illegally. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. Now what happens here, and it happens to the poor and the rich, and again, this is a part of trial, kind of expanding on it a bit, is that there's a, par a paradigm is a system of rules by which you perceive your world. All right, so that's your paradigm. Everybody has one. Call it the con in your consciousness, you have a system of rules that you think are right and, and wrong, a scale of values, if you will. And by that system, that paradigm, you look at your world and with you in it. And by that paradigm, you define things. Now, when your paradigm changes, your perspective changes. <coughs> now, the paradigm of the whole fallen world is earth. Earth. A beautiful example of this is uh, the paradigm of the, uh, well, the, I guess the entirety of uh, history until Copernicus. Now, Copernicus is the first guy who discovers, at least writes about it, that the sun is the center of the solar system and not the earth. So it's heliocentric, not geocentric. And that is a whole big change, right? So it was a that's a paradigm change. When people realized that the earth wasn't the center of things, that they actually, the way that they looked at the universe changed. Now, when our, our paradigm changes, we start to see our lives differently. And God is in the business of changing our paradigm. When we're all born, all of us, when we're born again and saved, have the wrong one. We have some things changed because you believe the gospel and some things you know, and that has changed it. But there's plenty of stuff in your heart that have not been changed. And so your perspective is wrong, and God is trying to get us, and he's going to use trial to do this. To change our paradigm so that we look at life, and I do mean every single day and every single person in that day and every uh, time we look at the Word of God and everything that we look at it in a certain way, the right way. And the right way is the eternal way. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't take care of earthly things, but I take care of them in a heavenly way. 
And that is a paradigm change. God is using trial to change it in you. And it's going to change. And if it doesn't change here on earth, it's going to change in heaven. But if it does change here on earth, there's promise. That's next. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's the promise. So this is why you don't have to get all upset and angry at those who don't get it because they're throwing away their reward. And so you should have a heart of compassion towards them and 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 try through prayer and intervention, correction, gentleness, of course, to try and teach people by your lifestyle and by your words that, look, you are throwing something away here. It's something super important. And the first part of it is inner happiness. <coughs> Blessed is the man. That's the exact same word that's the Beatitudes. It's the the Latin term for it. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, and all that. Those, it's the same word here used in that Greek word, makarios, it means happy. Blessed be is happiness. So that's inner happiness. Now, that is now for time, but then there's another reward that is for eternity, the crown of life. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And I love here how James connects it to the love of God because when you're going through trial, you don't want to break your fellowship with your Lord. I don't want to run down the rabbit hole of anger and bitterness and anxiety and reaction. Or uh, I could see there's two things you can do. You can try and get rid of the trial which I think people with influence and power and money try to get rid of the trial. Or you can try to stop its effects on you. And one of the ways people do that is they get drunk or high. Or they just, uh, sublimation, which is you throw yourself into some sin that distracts you from it. You can make yourself numb to it. And so people get involved in, in certain addictions. It could be chemical, it could be sexual, it could be anything whereby you are trying not to handle life's pressure with God's word, but you're trying to handle life's pressure by either getting rid of the pressure or stopping its effect on you. And it's not going to work. It's never going to work. So this connects us back to verse 2. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial... Verse 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So that's, we call that an inclusio. It's kind of like two bookends. The same exact word here is used, perosmos, which uh, means trial. It's the same word. Uh, (coughs) Consider it joy there. Blessed is joy. It's inner happiness. And so without trial, there's no inner happiness. What about the crown of life? And we don't have time really to to define it. 
It'd actually be kind of difficult to. It's mentioned here and in the book of Revelation. But uh, I, I always go with the crowns. I always go with their title. Uh, crown of righteousness. Crown of life. Life is what, you know, it's God's life. It's Christ's life. It's, that's the only true life. <clears throat> this eternal reward will be given to you at the judgment seat of Christ. And however that manifests itself. You see how important trials are. If you, if you could be of the mind that you could say, well, wait, I, I know what this is about. This is my, my journey to the crown of life. This is my, my journey to inner happiness that when the pressure comes, you will. Now, it's another thing that James says here. He says rejoice. And it, some of us might take that to mean, well, throughout the whole trial, I should have a big smile on my face. You know, I love pain. <laughs> no, I love that that jerks in my life. I love it. I love all the problems that my kids are going to jail or putting me through. I love all the, the you know, this horrible boss who is making my life a living hell. I, I love it, you know. No, you don't. It's not that we have happiness because of pain. That's masochism. Is that right, Keith? I was the mask. M is me, right? That's masochism. Paul's not a masochist, nor is James, uh, who wrote this. But we have rejoicing in the fact that we know that what this trial is doing. So, you know, it's, I mean, if, if you were like uh, working out or whatever, you're putting your body through pain and you actually might start to enjoy the pain because you know it's the, your ticket to a gold medal, you know, that kind of thing. So, contradictions. <clears throat> now we hit the problem. I've only got five minutes for it, which is perfect. Let no one say when he is tempted, verse 13, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself cannot tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Well, hold on now. We just went through 50 minutes of testing is good for me. It's the only way I'm going to learn. It's the only way I'm going to get endurance. And I should have, and it's going to give me inner peace and the crown of life. And yet God doesn't tempt anyone. But notice the context. What's tricky for us is that the same word is used. It's tempt. And even in Greek, it's the same word. It's parasmos. So, you know, what is this about? Is it a contradiction? And the answer obviously is not. God tests to give strength. Satan tests to get you to sin. And when God puts pressure on you, now I'm not saying Satan's following you around. I don't know how he does it. I don't care how he does it. I just know it happens. But Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, right? Seeking someone to devour. As God is putting pressure on you for you to learn your endurance, for you to learn to increase your faith, Satan understands that under pain and pressure, we're susceptible. So while Christ is in the wilderness hungry, and here comes Satan. 
Now, look, in the language of Matthew, it says that the Holy Spirit led him to be tempted by the devil. So it is God's intention that he be tempted by the devil. But what the devil says to him is not on God. Whatever the devil says, whatever the devil does, God has not forced that. God has not, well, if you want to use a decree, I don't want to use the word decree, but God has not ordained the devil to sin. God doesn't do that. So whatever the devil does, that's on him. And so there is two types here. One we want, the other we don't. But so often, they come together. When you're, when you're in pain, undeserved suffering that God has brought upon you, even if it's deserved suffering, you can grow and deserve suffering. It's not, it's not ideal, but you can learn not to be stupid through deserved suffering. I, I, I am a graduate of that school. I had a Ph.D. in stupid. But you learn some things. But while even while your the problems come upon you that are these things like we saw yesterday insults distresses difficulties persecution Paul said I rejoice when these come because when I'm weak I'm strong <clears throat> when they come that second one is going to come with it somehow because we're under pressure and God allows us the spiritual brain to unravel that. Say, God, why are you doing this to me? To make you grow. But it's causing me to sin. I didn't do that. And, and God promises, I will not tempt you more than you're able to bear. Like the, in the context of that passage is the Exodus generation. When he took the Exodus through the wilderness, were they able to bear the wilderness to get to the promised land? You bet they were. But they would not mix the promises of God with faith. They wouldn't believe them. So God led them to a place where they were going to die. But he said, your death is not on me. I have given you everything. You chose to reject me. You get what you sow, what you reap. Reap what you sow. But God here is, you know, without the test, we're not going to grow. But within the test, we're going to be tempted in the wrong way. And yet, from that, we will overcome. We have so many passages about this. Well, I didn't have time to get to them today. But one of the places where God tests someone to his glory is in Genesis 22 when he calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, take your son whom you love and take him to a place that I will show you and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham did. Now, that kind of pressure, God wants me to kill this son whom I have longed for my whole life and he is my favorite, the most beloved one thing in my whole life. And Abraham has a, an incredible opportunity to fail at that, but he doesn't. And that's another thing. We, we don't have time, but I keep saying that, sorry. If I fail... And Satan comes and tests me to sin. And I do. What do I do? Confess. Repent. 
put, put an end. Stop the pattern of sin. And get ready because God is going to test you again. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all things that are true, which come from you and from you alone. Bless us, Father, in the words that we've heard and read so that we also may be ready to be tested and to know that those tests are for our good. And when the other tests come, which are for not for our good, may we stand firm. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.